0: by the month a podcast about the history of marvel comics my name is brian stratton and i am rob meln and today we're going to be talking about fantastic four number two and tales to astonish number 27 rob have you read these issues before
1: i have i have read uh i think i mentioned this in the last episode but i i read these in marvel masterworks form uh, i didn't read actually the uh tales to astonish i read the fantastic four in a in a collection
0: it's Um, not a very astonishing tale but we'll get into that a little bit (laughs) but i i had
1: read uh even as a uh i think i was what they call a tween Uh um at the time when i read the the first collection of the marvel masterworks so i i had them pretty early but i had already been into the later eras of the
0: fantastic four by then yeah yeah. Um, I also, I think, read the uh, Fantastic Four number two for the first time in Marvel Masterworks uh, in those nice hardcovers they used to put out. And I'm trying to remember, I know that I have read uh, this uh, Tales to Astonish number 27, um, which I guess we should mention. Um, it's the first appearance of Hank Pym, who would go on to become Ant-Man, although he there are ants and there is a man. <laughs> but this is not an Ant-Man story. Um Uh, I think I may have read, uh, like an excerpted version of it in like Marvel Saga or something. Um, I was kind of familiar with the story, but I think this might have been one of the first times, if not the first time that I actually read, um, that short story, um, as a whole, but yeah, it was, it was, it's always great to go back and and revisit the early Fantastic Fours. I love the, you know, the, the early, uh, Uh, Lee and Kirby work, um, especially their work on Fantastic Four. And, you know, it was kind of cool to see um, the second hero that uh, Marvel rolled out, even though he wasn't really much of a superhero at this point. Um, Should we get into it? Let's get into it. So Fantastic Four number two, this is the first appearance of the Skrulls from outer space. Um, If you are not familiar with the Skrulls, they are shape-shifting aliens. They were established very early on, obviously, as a Fantastic Four villain, although they would go on to basically fight just about everyone in the Marvel Universe, Um, and then much, 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 much later, uh, the entire uh, Secret Invasion saga revolved around them, um, where they were infiltrating uh, the Marvel heroes and... And replacing them one by one. So we begin
1: with some. uh, (laughs) With the question. What is happening here? We see Benjamin J. Grimm. uh, Swimming towards. A a platform. uh, Like an oil platform. Mm -hmm. By the end of the page. He has punched the support post. To bring the whole thing down. And uh, don't worry. Everyone is getting away in the boats. But uh, they also see him. Swimming away. Mm -hmm. So they've flagged him as, for some reason, a vandal
0: willing to knock down an oil platform. And I think that it's, it's kind of amazing for two reasons. First of all, you see uh, Ben Grimm, the Thing, uh, committing this uh, incredible act of vandalism, and he's supposed to be a hero. Also, uh, apparently, the Thing can swim, uh, despite the fact that he's made out of about 1,200 pounds of rocks. Mm. So uh, that was also... He's very powerful. Shocking. Um, and then we, uh, uh, on uh, the next page... Uh, We see that uh, Sue Storm, the invisible girl, um, is using her celebrity um, to be able to see uh, a very, very fancy diamond uh, in one of America's most expensive jewelry stores. Uh, It's worth almost $10 million. Normally, they don't take this out and let anyone look at it, but for her, they make an exception. Um, And unfortunately for them, she doesn't just want to look at it. uh, She picks it up. And disappears with it, uh, causing quite a panic um, uh, and leaving a befuddled jewelry store owner uh, and a bunch of policemen uh, searching for her to no avail. And you might see the theme now. As we
1: uh, move forward, there's an unveiling of a priceless statue that took five years to carve out of solid marble. And the Human Torch, who we thought last issue, all of these people were heroes, flies in again in a terrible act of vandalism melting the marble statue with his incredible heat and flies off laughing.
0: What the hell? Uh, And then finally, just to round this out, we see uh, at a power plant in the heart of the city, uh, a workman who's uh, standing by uh, sees an arm snake in through the window. He sorts out pretty quickly. It can only belong to Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Uh, He pulls the lever that switches off all the power to the city and plunges it into utter darkness, um, which, you know, I would think that wouldn't be that difficult to reverse if it's just one switch, but anyway, it's pretty nefarious. Uh, we're three pages in, uh, and the heroes that we were just introduced to one issue ago uh, are unleashing this reign of terror uh, upon the city, which I don't know if they've mentioned specifically yet that it's New York City, but um, it is basically New York City. Quickly, we realize as the this group
1: of nefarious villains gathers, uh, they begin to reveal that they're not actually the Fantastic Four. They want the nation hunting the Fantastic Four. So they've committed these acts. So they uh, then walk through how
0: they pulled this off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have uh, the ersatz Ben Grimm. He had a concealed electronic detonator in his hand that he used to destroy the platform. It wasn't raw strength. Uh, but he sure made it look that way. And instead of actually turning invisible, the uh, the invisible girl woman turned very small, just shrank. Yes, and uh, the fake Human Torch used uh, a jetpack and a low velocity thermal bomb to destroy the statue and appear to be a flying flaming human. The
1: person impersonating Reed turns out they didn't need anything special because they're a shape shifting scroll bug eyed alien.
0: So, yes, the whole uh, plan is uh, these nefarious aliens uh, whose mothership is orbiting the planet, um, they want to destroy the Fantastic Four, but they don't want to do it themselves. They want to have humanity rise up uh, and turn against them. Something that the Marvel Universe establishes pretty quickly, um, considering this is literally the second Marvel comic uh, uh, of the what we would call now the Marvel Age of Comics. The newspapers uh, oblige uh, the Skrulls um, and uh, declare the Fantastic Four public enemies. Announce that there's a dragnet out for them. Um, this is it, it. This is much different than other superhero comics of the time, um, where it was just kind of taken on faith that if you showed up. Um, wearing your underwear on the outside of your clothes and uh, wearing a mask and cape, um, that you were a hero and no one really questioned that. But as we see here, society at large does not hesitate uh, to take everything at face value. Um, And they are very, very skeptical uh, about these so-called heroes.
1: Yeah. And I think that gives, and this is page four of of the second issue. Yeah. That's part of the, uh, uh, realism would be a stretch, but Uh, the more realistic view of this, the universe that's being
0: created right now. So where are the actual Fantastic Four? Well, they're hiding out uh, in an isolated hunting lodge, and they're hearing uh, through the radio what's going on. They're aware uh, that they are public enemy number one. Uh, They don't know who's doing this, um, but they are um, certainly determined to get to the bottom of it. And everyone sort of reacts um, pretty in character. Um, (laughs) Reed is obsessed with trying to figure out Who's impersonating them and why? Johnny, uh, he doesn't really take it too seriously. Uh, he just figures Reed's going to figure it out, um, and then they'll take care of him. Ben is kind of a different story. <laughs> he's he's starting with his usual bah. Says, essentially,
1: if they want to treat us like monsters, maybe I am a monster. And starts to trash things. Yeah. Pulls, pulls a, a mounted bear head off the wall and <laughs> chucks it through
0: <laughs> a window. <laughs> that poor bear. It's like just insult to injury. (laughs) And Reed wraps him up in his elastic arms and tries to calm him down. and Sort of does. He sort of does, but the thing goes off on, you know, what is already a pretty familiar rant. Well, at least the rest of you are human. I'm hated and uh, I'm a rocky monster.
1: And I'm going out to fight to smash.
0: Yep. Uh, Then we have a very quick recap of uh, how the Fantastic Four got their powers, in case you came in on issue late. And then uh, it's time to figure out what we're going to do next. And this takes us to Part 2, Prisoner of the Scrolls. Here we see that
1: outside of the cabin, we have the United States Army surrounding this cabin ready to capture the Fantastic Four. Uh,
0: the FF uh, doesn't want to cause trouble. Um, they give in without a fight because, as Reed says, we don't plan to fight the whole U.S. Army. And he may just be speaking for three of them. I think Ben, if left to his own devices, might have done it, but he behaves himself uh, and the three of them are led uh, to a federal prison, where they're each going to be put in a specially constructed private cell. And what do those cells look like? Well, Suze looks like a cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, of course. She feels so. Uh, yeah, we'll get into this in a little <laughs> bit, but there's again being aware of time and place and context and all that. Uh, if if you're starting to kind of suss out that. Sue Storm isn't given a ton of super interesting stuff to do. That's I think that's a fair knock uh, on it. Um, but uh, yeah, she uh, she's in her cell and she turns invisible. <laughs> and
1: Johnny's uh, in an asbestos room. Mm-hmm. So uh, so his flame can't do any damage. But he uh, almost out of character for how quick witted this is, mm-hmm. realizes that there must be an air van. And he quickly finds one in the floor. Yeah. So he's found the flaw like...
0: Immediately, that. yeah. Then, basically the opposite of quick-witted, uh, he's he realizes that his cell is made of thick battleship steel, but he's like, yeah, screw it. I'll just keep hitting it until it breaks. <laughs> um, and he repeatedly shoulder blocks it, uh, and you see the wall start to buckle.
1: And, uh, and Reed is in a totally empty cell. He figures, because they're afraid, he'll make anything he finds into a weapon. Uh, But he knows his body is weapon enough. Mm -hmm. He is no Bruce Lee, but he has some powers. So he starts looking around for any weak spot,
0: any imperfection, no matter how tiny. A
1: loose rivet, perhaps. And how
0: do they bust out of this prison? Because you can probably guess, you know, we're only on page nine. They're probably not going to spend, you know, another fifteen pages just sitting around in jail. Um, and also, we got scrolls to deal with. So uh, first, we'll check in with Sue. Um, a couple soldiers bring her her meal. They open the door and say, "Where is she?" They couldn't possibly have anticipated that she might have disappeared. But disappeared is exactly what she does. And she rushes out past them. And uh, they blow the whistle and sound the alarm. But they are prevented from chasing after her immediately because... (laughs) Johnny has gotten through that one small air vent
1: was enough for him to burst into flames. And so he could burn through his asbestos self as what it looks like. He's
0: melted through the side. And speaking of bursting... As Ben hypothesized, even steel will shatter if you pound at it long enough, and he never gets tired. So he smashes through and warns the soldiers to get out of the way or he's going to trample them. <laughs> and then these, <laughs> and then you see
1: uh, the weirdest thing. Um, <laughs> it's just Reed, his head, and it, his neck going down to a tiny point coming through
0: a rivet. And this is something, like, I always remembered that about this issue, that... One particular image of Reed's weird head, like squeezing out of a rivet hole, like a toothpaste (laughs) from a tube. There's something very striking about it. One of the really fun things about reading the old uh, Autobinder uh, Plastic Man comics was like trying to figure out what thing in the background was Plastic Man in disguise. (laughs) But those were always really goofy. I mean, they were really they were meant to be, you know, they were a a kiddie comic. um, And that was kind of part of the fun of it. This is just played really straight like there's no there's no novelty to this. It's just reads a guy in brown khakis and a green plaid shirt like just squeezing through a rivet hole. (laughs) There's
1: another point like there's there haven't been any costumes.
0: No, they still don't have costumes yet. Yeah, Um, and won't for a little while longer, but that doesn't stop them from from being super and uh, busting out of the prison. Um, Johnny basically torches the place. They steal a helicopter and make their escape. They're free, but for how long?
1: So once, once they're free, they, they of course are still trying to set, to figure out how to to find the people impersonating them. Mm -hmm. And they decide they need to set a trap, uh, which leads to another trope of the fantastic four which is uh johnny and ben getting into a fight about who's going to do it
0: <laughs> yep they are the two little brothers of the uh, of the team and they have a pretty fierce rivalry ben gets up in johnny's grill johnny flames on drives ben back reed steps between them um and uh then they proceed to uh, execute their plan which is that Johnny is going to go to where a new rocket is being tested, um, and he's going to uh, demolish um, the launching platform uh, as the Human Torch because he knows, A, it won't hurt anyone, and B, it'll be enough to hopefully convince uh, the people who are impersonating them uh, to come out of hiding um, and trick them into seeing him as one of them. So Turnabout being fair play.
1: Spoiler, it works! It works! Uh, He jumps into a car with what looks like Reed and Sue and says, if I didn't know better, I'd swear you were Susan Storm and Reed Richards, two of the Fantastic Four, and... Sue says, well, that's who we're supposed to be, isn't it? And then they take them to the aliens' headquarters.
0: Yes. But then uh, once they get there, uh, the aliens suss out pretty quickly that Johnny is the actual human torch. Uh, they try to stop him, but not before he can fire his Fantastic Four flare gun out the window and then uh, flame on and keep the scrolls busy uh, while the rest of his teammates uh, bust down the door and confront them. Now we're on to the next uh, chapter. Of the Fantastic Four fight back, and uh, this is uh, exactly what you would expect.
1: Everyone comes in. It's there's a great shot of Ben in the foreground holding up one of the scrolls, and the yeah. Fantastic Four make pretty quick work of these four scrolls. They don't seem yeah. to remember to shapeshift or <laughs> uh, do much of anything to stop them. They're just to- they're taken down.
0: It's literally a three-panel fight. Uh, so the the FF gets the drop on the scrolls, uh, give them a taste of their own medicine. Uh, Reed is trying to get them to talk. They refuse. So then Ben picks up a desk, a big desk, <laughs> a real big, like one of those <laughs> those those real heavy oaken. What to say, credenza? <laughs> I don't know exactly. And he's uh, he's ready to just smush these guys into green paste. Uh, once again, it's Reed with the elastic arm wrapping up Ben trying to get him to you know, not have murder on his conscience. Uh, but it's enough to freak out the Skrulls, uh, and they, they spill the beans on the whole plan. Um, their invasion fleet is waiting uh, up above the atmosphere. Um, they're going to attack as soon as the Fantastic Four have been dealt with by human authorities. And uh, Reed decides that if the Skrulls are going to impersonate the Fantastic Four, then the Fantastic Four are going to impersonate the Skrulls. And that's much more
1: cost-effective than trying to destroy a space fleet. They quickly find out that the Skrulls' secret spaceship is disguised as a water tower yeah. on top of the building. So there's a scene of them, of the Fantastic Four just climbing a ladder on an old water tower on the building, which then rockets into space. Yeah. yeah it's
0: pretty whimsical. And I actually love the commitment to deception. Uh, like this is the Skrulls' MO, and everything is consistent with it. So, you know, no, they don't have like an invisible ship or a hidden ship. They have something disguised as something else, <laughs> which is. Very on brand so for the scrolls. Scrolly. Yeah. Uh so they go to the mothership. They're they're still
1: posing as the scrolls that were there. They say they can't turn back. They they need to go back to the planet and that they shouldn't invade the planet and they give them proof.
0: Yes. And that proof is uh images that Reed clipped out of uh Strange Tales and in Journey into Mystery. So um it's pretty meta. Uh I think this is also like one of the first times that a comic book has referenced comic books as existing in its own universe. Um, And specifically, these are Marvel comics. So it gets into this kind of weird recursive thing. Um, I think uh, Captain America's original secret identity is as a comics artist who draws the Captain America (laughs) comic. So um, yeah. So like Marvel comics does exist in the Marvel universe, um, which is kind of awesome. Um, And so Reed shares these clippings of uh, monster mags, all of which were drawn by Kirby, of course. And he has, you know, these giant lava beasts and giant ants and all sorts of things. Um, And I guess the the Skrull commander, uh, who has never seen, you know, pulp comics before, uh, he is sufficiently convinced that, you know, these things actually exist on Earth and he wants nothing to do with this planet if that's the kind of thing that they're going to have to go up against.
1: So before they leave, he says, uh, asks them to unmask the reed insists that they can't they must stay behind and remove all evidence of their presence and for that for that sacrifice they are awarded the highest award of bravery a sweet medal
0: yep With yeah some kind of little saturn on it it's great so they head back uh they take off in their little water tower rocket ship um and but they're going back to earth um which means they're going back through the radiation belt that originally transformed them into the fantastic four um, everyone's a little apprehensive, but Ben really freaks out because he didn't have such a great time the last time they went through this. And uh, he can feel himself changing. And what he doesn't realize uh, at this moment is that he is changing, but he's changing back into his human form. Um, and he they land on the Earth, which takes us to the next chapter of the Fantastic Four, Captured.
1: and they are immediately uh, surrounded by floodlights and hoops. And to respond to that, as Reed tries to talk them down and explain the real story of shapeshifting aliens, (laughs) Ben says, I can smash all of you single-handed, starts, you know, his normal (laughs) uh, threats, and they basically
0: say... Uh, never saw you before, mister. And uh, Ben can't believe it. He's like, you know, like literally how many other people look like me, a giant orange rock man. And uh, that's when he realizes that he's turned back into his human form, to human Ben Grimm. And he's so happy. But then just a couple panels later, all of a sudden the transformation starts reversing itself and he starts turning back into Ben Grimm. It's an amazing six panel sequence where you've got like literally in the, the first and second panels, his face is when he's still human is uplifted. And then he looks down at his hands as they're starting to transform back and his face just falls. And it's a really wonderful, emotional piece of sequential art.
1: Again, it helps to reinforce that sort of bitterness of, of Ben. And this happened to him almost immediately after they got back in, in the first episode too. Yeah. So, uh, to bring it back in this, in this, in this second issue is, is just such a hard thing. Yeah. I, re- I remember very distinctly, it, again, having already known a lot of the history of the fantastic four
0: being so sad. for him. <laughs> I think there's, there's, um, There's no mystery to why Ben Grimm wound up being such a fan favorite early on in the Marvel universe is that there's tremendous emotional resonance to the character. Uh, It's a very believable and authentic uh, experience uh, that you go through watching this character. You know, he just wants to be a normal person. He's miserable when he's super, even though like as a little kid, you're like, man, I'd love to be Ben Grimm. And then you kind of understand it's like, oh, yeah, maybe it's not great.
1: Yeah, dinner. actually, earlier in this issue, he's talking about ending himself. Maybe he'd be better off, and that's that's pretty heavy stuff for a comic book.
0: Yeah, basically
1: yeah. a suicidal superhero. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and so
0: depressed. <laughs> yeah, I mean this this is uh, January 1962. We're talking about you know where yeah you, know, you didn't even talk about that stuff. Period, uh, much less in a kitty comic. So, oh, so anyway, um, the FF, uh, now that they've uh, convinced the police what's going on, um, they lead a raid on the Skrull's headquarters or their apartment where they're staying. And uh, when the cops show up, they are confronted by the scrolls transformed into monstrous forms. Um, the first is a giant snake, which one of the cops uh, in <laughs> his... Very stereotypical Irish uh, New York cop uh, brogue. Holy henna, that thing was never spawned on Earth. it's like, dude, it's a giant snake. I mean, it it really could have been. I mean, it's unusual for sure. But I mean, like, don't jump to alien immediately.
1: (laughs) Right. It's possibly earthly. I think they were aware of giant snakes at that point. (laughs) Science had reached that point. Yeah. Uh, And then a giant metal monster, like spiked metal monster, pops out
0: and that okay all right you know maybe that might be a proof of you
1: know alien life here the third one turns into some kind of odd looking bird mm-hmm.
0: tries to take off reed catches it so they capture the scrolls again you know these guys are not uh the most fearsome foes the fantastic four have or will ever deal with um there's kind of a funny explanation here so we only see three scrolls um And it's obvious that that Jack may have just forgotten to draw the fourth one. And so it's kind of fixed in dialogue uh, on the second to last page where Reed's like, oh, the fourth one's on his way to another galaxy now, the rest of the invasion fleet. Um, So that's how they kind of get around that. Hmm. But uh, they're trying to figure out what to do um, with these scrolls. Uh, They can't put them in prison because they can escape from just about any prison, just like the FF did. And uh, but Reed has an idea because of course Reed has an idea. That's basically his superpower in addition to stretching.
1: So he talks. This is where we do have a lot of trust now that the mm-hmm. police officers have seen shape shifting aliens. Yep. They're like, oh, you know what? We will leave these guys with you. You figure <laughs> out what to do with them. Yeah, this <laughs> and, is the other pay grade. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, Reed's <laughs> Reed's plan. It's so great. Um, first, the scrolls are worried they're going to be executed because yep. he has he says he knows exactly what to do with them. So there's only one way that they couldn't escape. So
0: they assume they're just done for. And but That's not the way that <laughs> the fantastic for a role, um, what they wind up doing is getting the scrolls to transform into cows and then hypnotizing them. So they forget that they were ever scrolls, which is a pretty elegant solution. And, uh, and that's the way they, the issue ends. Here's a, a fun little trivia fact. Um, One of my favorite things about the ending of this story is that years later, it comes back uh, as part of an Avengers storyline, like in the 70s, I think. And I think Neil Adams uh, was the artist for it. It it begins with, and I don't think this line is actually in the original story, but when it was collected in a trade paperback years later, um, he did this in the cover. But uh, the story begins with the vision uh, crashing through the door of the Avengers mansion, like in all sorts of bad shape and he just has time to sputter out three cows shot me down (laughs) (laughs) and then he goes offline and it's like, but it's like one of those great, um, and you know, it's a callback to this. And obviously the scrolls are involved and, you know, we'll get to that, uh, in a couple, three years of this podcast, but, um, (laughs) stick around. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just love the fact that, you know, this is, um, this story has resonance years later, not just in that Avengers storyline, but also, I mean, the scrolls just wind up being uh, a great recurring villain time and time again. The next issue that we're going to talk about, at least uh, the first 10 pages of it, uh, is Tales to Astonish, number 27. Um, and this is the first appearance, uh, as mentioned previously, of Hank Pym, uh, who would go on to become Ant-Man, um, but is not Ant-Man yet. Um, the story is called the man in the ant hill, and it opens with, uh, just a really great Kirby splash page, uh, that honestly tells the whole story just about better than the story hmm. tells itself, uh, where you've got a tiny little Hank Pym at the bottom of the page, uh, inside of an ant hill, uh, with just an army of ants, uh, chasing after him. And it looks like there's absolutely no escape. How did he get into this predicament? That's a great question. No, thank you. Uh, A lot
1: of the dialogue in this sounds like a bad Twilight Zone episode. Living nightmares can begin in many ways.
0: I I guess we should mention at this point, um, I don't think it's credited in the issue itself, but uh, Kirby was definitely the artist of it. Uh, or the penciler. Um, and I believe the writing credit is Stanley with Larry Lieber, um, who is Stan's brother. And so my guess just from the way the story rolls out is that I'm going to say is about 5% Stan, 95% Larry, <laughs> um, which is not a knock on Larry Lieber. He, he definitely wrote, um, some pretty solid stories. Uh, spoiler alert. This doesn't happen to be one that I consider, uh, in that, <laughs> that set.
1: I do like, so the setup, Hank, or Henry Pym, sorry, says it works. I've done it. I've reduced the chair to doll size. That's how it starts. And I, you know, instantly thought as I read this, oh, so. (laughs) Uh, And uh... (laughs) yeah, (laughs) good job, dude. That was your whole goal. Just doll size chair. Yeah. Uh, Then he applies a, a growth potion and brings it back starting to get cooler.
0: He thinks back as he's re-enlarging this chair uh, to a scientist convention that he went to. He's being criticized uh, for just having crazy ideas. And he says, oh, wait, I've got a really great idea, though. They challenge him to talk about it. And he says he's not going to. But when it's finished, he's going to show it to them. And then they will know that he is a greater scientist than any of them. And he, he heads to his lab, works for months
1: alone, and his, his dream, which this makes sense, anything being reduced
0: in size and shipped for a fraction of the cost. Yeah, exactly. The, the first thing, it looks like he's talking about shipping you know, food and vital supplies, which is great. Uh, it, immediately, his next thought is um, <laughs> a military application, which... You know, considering around this time, uh, Nikita Khrushchev is threatening basically the entire world uh, with nuclear weapons. So you can kind of understand, you know, eh, tensions are running a little high. So maybe the military industrial complex isn't the worst thing to give a reducing potion to. (laughs) Although, spoiler alert, eventually it would be. But yeah, so then uh, like any good mad scientist, he decides, okay, it works in a chair. Time to test it on me. (laughs) (laughs) He
1: pours few drops on himself. And it it works. Yeah. Uh, Too well. Yeah, shrinks way too fast. And, uh, I mean, it doesn't look like he planned on being even as small as the chair was. No. Um, And he is very quickly much smaller, and he stumbles through the open door to the outside, which I imagine is like a football field of stumbling. Right. But he does it.
0: And uh, he gets chased by some ants. And so to escape them, he decides... To run into an ant hill. Uh, he tumbles and he falls into honey, which, according to Hank, uh, ants store for food. <laughs> okay. All right, Larry.
1: And then he sees an ant crawling towards him, but the ant uh, offers help, mm-hmm. like helps pull him out of the honey. Yeah, So yes. just one just really great ant.
0: yeah an altruistic ant. I
1: mean not a great aunt uh,
0: but then uh, the ants not so great buddies show up uh, and surround him and it looks like it's curtains for Henry Pym but the ants just happen to have brought a matchstick into the anthill and the matchstick just happens to be dry and standing vertically uh, up from the ground and so he picks up a rock and throws it with precision and lights the matchstick uh, on fire he uh, takes advantage of that distraction to make a makeshift lasso and climb out of the anthill. This is a less elegant escape than the Fantastic Four came up with. I mean, I'm just going to put that out there.
1: And there's just a lot of, uh, again, it's a, it's a shorter story, but mm-hmm. there are some they're big leaps. Uh, I don't know what he fashioned the lasso from nope. or how he fashioned a lasso yep, or how his lasso technique is uh, (laughs) so well-developed, but it works. uh, So he's out, but there's another ant waiting for him.
0: He does judo to that ant, throws it off a ledge. He's trying to get back to the window ledge where his enlarging serum is. He's getting again, surrounded by ants. Uh, It looks like it's all over, but then his ant friend shows up and uh, helps him scale the wall and get to the enlarging serum.
1: And once he splashes around in that that little beaker of enlarging serum, he grows back to his normal size and decides decides it's far too dangerous to ever be used
0: by any human again.
1: I'm sure that's the last we'll hear of something like that.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm sure that um, neither shrinking nor enlarging nor ants will ever factor into Henry Pym's life Mm. in any way, shape or form. No Um, insects whatsoever. No so it's basically just a six page story or yeah, seven page story. So, uh, beginning middle and the man who would become Ant-Man, uh, this is his first epic adventure. What do you think, uh, held up really well from these, uh, these issues from, let's talk about, uh, Fantastic Four number two first.
1: For me, it's, uh, a couple of things the, that, that, fear among the humans is, is a piece of the Marvel universe that I've always adored. And of course really hits its stride in just a couple of years after this. And, uh, but the fact that they live in a world where people recognize their power and fear it Mm -hmm. seems much more real, even to a kid. Like you, you understand that's weird and people don't necessarily like it. And so trust isn't just immediately given, Oh, you seem mighty. Yeah. Here's the key to the city.
0: Yeah. And it feels very of its time, too. I mean, this is a time when, you know, the Cold War is running very hot. Nuclear weapons are a very real threat. And there is reason to be afraid of tremendous power. And I think that really captures sort of the zeitgeist of, uh, you know, of of science. Uh, Science gone wrong, basically. Um, I always think the emotional dynamic of the Fantastic Four. I think from the very, very beginning, Lee and Kirby hit that perfectly. Especially Ben's retransformation um, back into a human and then back into the Thing. It really just pulls at your heartstrings, and uh, I I really like the Reed solution about what to do with the scrolls. Um, you know, he he doesn't fire them off into space. He doesn't, you know, bury them at the bottom of the sea. He Gets them to change into something harmless, and then hypnotizes them into thinking that they've always been that. Like it's kind of a cool solution, and um, it,
1: it seems like something that you w- they would do in a in a movie uh, of the '70s or something. When they so they're like, yes, there's a space fleet, and they should go mm-hmm. destroy them, and then they're going to need to deal with these shape shifting prisoners on Earth. So, but we can't afford the budget to have somebody go up and <laughs> blow up a bunch of spaceships and. You know, uh, so but it's really actually just a, a humanistic solution yeah. and, and a humane solution. So they come up with a way to drive away a space fleet and keep some prisoners that could not be held with just
0: some quick, simple thinking. Yeah. And it it is kind of silly, but the logic as funny as it is, is internally consistent. So like it holds up. It's <laughs> yeah. You're not just, you know, pulling things out of thin air, contradicting something that you had uh, earlier in the story. Some things I think that didn't age so well. So, you know, again, I touched on this earlier. Um, you know, if you're a Sue storm fan, um, especially coming at it from modern perspective uh, you're waiting a while for her to really get interesting things to do or to have really any sense of agency whatsoever. And, you know, I also, I tried not to judge something that came out in 1962 by 2018 standards, because it's simply not fair. Um, but even from that perspective, like she definitely gets way less to do in this story than any of the other uh, fantastic Four members. Even the fake Sue Storm gets more to do than the actual yeah. Sue Storm. I
1: think Sue's main lines, if you will, in these two issues is to sort of help Sue the band. Like that's where she gets her 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 longest lines, which are very short. And and it's usually one panel and Reed is wrapped Ben up again and everything's fine. <laughs> he needs this thunder blanket. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that special kind of hug that only Reed can
0: give Ben. <laughs> As far as uh, Tales to Astonish 27, uh, things that didn't age so well. I'm going to say the whole story. (laughs) Tales to Astonish number 27. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not only is it by the numbers, but it's just it's not a very interesting version of what had been, you know, a pretty well told story. Like um, I was actually going back and looking at, you know, monster movies that had come out, you know, in the five years or so prior to. Uh, to this issue and i mean this is it's totally well-trod territory it's in 1957 you had attack of the crab monsters the black scorpion the deadly mantis uh in 1958 you had earth versus the spider all of these are about giant insects or giant creatures you know terrorizing a town or terrorizing people Uh, and then in 1957 you also had the incredible shrinking man so uh, there's very little in the story that's not completely derivative and derivative is not bad. You know, the, the good artists borrow the great artists steal, but it didn't have that additional spark that makes it into something unique and really cool um, and distinctive. Uh, it just feels like it's, it's a, it's a sci-fi anthology short. Like that's all it is. It's, and
1: that's really what a lot of Marvel was doing at the time. Oh, I mean, totally. Is, that's mm-hmm. the thing is we, we're looking at this, this, spark of the marvel universe as we know it Mm -hmm. but then contrasting that with the story that's part of the normal you know what uh, i want to say creep show uh yeah sort of just um short stories that are all just borrowing from from the same thing yeah
0: so rob if you had to pick uh a panel to uh, jump out at you um, for this month. Um, what What is one that really stuck with you? I'm split
1: between two.
0: I have a, a brother who's one year or, or
1: year and a half younger than me. We mm-hmm. just argued about Hulk or the Thing. Thor sure. wasn't even in the equation <laughs> for who the strongest was. Uh, and he was just like a Goldilocks god. He's we were, we were busy yeah. with this these monsters. Yep, and uh, And I was a big Thing fan so uh i when i but i remember seeing the thing when he broke out when he was just just bashing through the the steel um when he comes out like the the shot of him breaking out of the cell with just bent steel all around him was and it's just totally like for my little boy brain of of smashing things or Mm -hmm. whatever it was glorious yeah and, and there's one the the other piece is the pinup at the very end of this is uh the very end of the the comic there's just a page of of ben as a pinup and uh and he's got this mangled street light in his hand and that, that, <laughs> it's really the mangled street light like he he looks he's looked better i mean or cooler in different spots mm-hmm. throughout the the comics
0: he still has his his orange lumpy yeah he's, he's the lumpy point. guy and it's yeah.
1: but it's a big you know full splash page but it's just the the artistry really in the bent lamp in his hand i love that's like broken globe on the top and uh and i i remember that from the first time i read it so those two really stuck out to me they're not super meaningful but they're uh, they. I just love them when yep. I was a kid.
0: Oh, I mean Kirby doing destruction is—it's what he was born to do. Um, this is before we get Cosmic Kirby, which is the best Kirby. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kirby just drawing his guys tearing stuff up uh, is just about as good as it gets. Um, and Kirby drew both of these issues. Um, and so my panel of the month. So despite the fact that I really didn't care for the story all that much, I really do think the first panel, which is a full page splash of, uh, of the ant hill, uh, with, uh, Henry Pym, uh, escaping or trying to escape from these, these ravenous ants. Um, I actually think that's the thing that stood out to me most from reading, um, the stuff for this month, um, for, uh, January 62. Um, again, only because I think it tells the story, as well or better than the story tells itself. And also there's there's no words on this page except for the title of the story. The man and the anthill. There's no exposition. It's just Kirby getting to do what Kirby does best, which is, you know, just tell this really big story and, and uh with you know kind of the dynamic flow uh and uh to the page. Um it's great. I love it. I, um,
1: I think you're right. That's like I don't know how there's maybe 40 ants on yeah. this uh, page, but they're coming through the tunnels and it's crazy.
0: Thanks for joining us. This was uh, Marvel by the month for uh, January, 1962. If you want to follow us on the social medias, uh, there's places you can do that. You can get us at Instagram at Marvel by the month on Twitter at Marvel BTM because Marvel by the Month was too many characters. (laughs) Uh, And uh, you can find us uh, at facebook.com slash Marvel by the Month. Hit us up there. We post our panels of the month and uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Let us know what you thought of these issues. Let's have a little book club going. Um, It's great stuff. This has been Marvel by the Month. My name's Brian Stratton. And I'm Rob Milne. And please join us for next month, next week.